What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. He is Professor Meyer Statman of Santa Clara University, and really, he completes our cycle of behavioral economists, beginning with Professor Schiller, going on to Thaler, Kahneman, and now Stottman. We've essentially hit for the, the whole cycle. Um, he's written a number of books on behavioral economics. He's uh, advised a number of financial institutions, um, both in real life and online versions. Uh, he is extremely knowledgeable about not just behavioral economics, but contextualizing the development of this field relative to finance over the years. And I really enjoyed the way he described first generation, second generation, and in the not too distant future, third generation behavioral economics, because it shows how our understanding uh, of homo economists, of, of humans as perfectly efficient, rational profit maximizers, how that model was so far off, how we r began to recognize it being off. And, and you'll hear in the podcast portion, the discussion of how one of his first papers uh, back in 1984 generated so much pushback. It was one of the first behavioral economics papers published in a major journal of finance. People threatened to never submit a paper again. And it's really fascinating how the world has caught up. It it only took, so you go back to 1984, what is it, 30 years, 30 plus years before uh, the world of finance has caught up to academia. I, I found him to be charming and delightful, and I think you will as well. So with no further ado, my conversation with Professor Meyer Statman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest today is Professor Meyer Statman. He is the Glenn Klimek Professor of Finance at Santa Clara University. If you follow behavioral finance, you should certainly be familiar with his work. His research has been published in the Journal of Finance, Review of Financial Studies. He's won numerous awards, Bill Sharp Best Paper Award, Bernstein Fabazi Jacob Levy Outstanding Article Award, the Moskowitz Prize, the MacArthur Industry Pioneer Award, IMCA Journal Awards, and three Graham and Dodd Awards. He is on the Wealthfront Investment Advisory Board, and he was named one of 25 most influential people by investment advisor, Meyer Statman. Welcome to Bloomberg. Delighted to be with you, Barry. So- I, by the way, that is really the short version of your curriculum vitae. I, I could go on and on about um, lots and lots of stuff. Well, thank you for not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but let's jump into it because you have such an interesting background and, and your work is so fascinating. Um, you were at the University of Jerusalem and also at the University of Jerusalem were 
Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Did your time there overlap at all with theirs? That is a very interesting question. Yeah, it is the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and and, and the economics building where I studied is right next to the psychology building. Mm-hmm. And and during my studies, I earned pocket money by walking over to the psychology department and serving as a guinea pig for experiments. Mm-hmm. It turns out that these were not by Kahneman and Tversky themselves when I talked with them and identified them. Uh, it was others. But I had no idea of who they are, and I had no idea of their work. And and it can tell you that, wow. that while there were just feet separating the two buildings, the world that separated psychology and economics and finance uh, was really very, very tall, like some other wall I will not mention. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the Undoing Project, which Michael Lewis uh, just published last year, he said he spent a lot of time speaking to people at the university and... I guess later in their careers, there were some really fascinating tales about uh, about the two of them. I think your age difference, you, you might have been sort of in between uh, that, just before they, they became quite famous. That is right. Yeah, I, I became aware of their work really at the very beginning of 1980 when I came to Santa Clara University mm-hmm. and I met uh, Herr Sheffrin. And Herr Sheffrin knew of his work of their work through a Dick Thaler when they were both at Rochester. Mm-hmm. And from that, it was off to the races. To, to say the least. So so let's get into a little bit about um, finance and psychology. You have an MBA, but you also have spent a lot of time in the world of psychology. How do you go from studying finance? How do you morph towards towards the psychology side of it? Well, I've always been interested in human behavior. Any any time, if, when I think about it, my childhood, mm-hmm. uh, and then I thought that uh, learning about economic behavior would tell me a whole lot, and it did. And I always felt that there was something missing in those models, but I could not identify precisely what. Mm-hmm. And it was only kind of in in hindsight that I can see how things come together. Uh, and it was, of course, the work of Kahneman and Tversky that created structure, and I could see the con- the connection between what they were doing and what it is that I had in mind. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk a little b- bit about where economics misses the human behavioral side. Uh, how did we ever begin with the assumption that humans are rational, profit-maximizing Actors. If you spend any time with humans, it's pretty clear they're not especially rational. Well, that too is a very interesting question because I wrote a paper that led me to go back to old issues of the Journal of Finance and the Financial Analyst Journal. And if you look at stuff that was written in 1945, it's very clear that people in finance knew about human behavior. For example, I saw an article that wrote about the reluctance of people to realize losses and how they they just hope against hope that it will come back and 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 that author tried to persuade them that tax considerations should drive them to realize their losses well that was really lost once we got to Miller and Modigliani mm. and the rational 
view of finance that fit in simple mathematical models. And then it became that the models became sort of the jail of people. Yes. <laughs> and and people were cut and quartered to fit into the models rather than the models expanding to fit what people really are. So that naturally leads to, to the question, um, are markets really efficient? And is the efficient market hypothesis, is it truly valid? Well, there is great confusion about this issue of market efficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a claim that behavioral finance great contribution is to show that markets are not efficient. That, I think, is not so. There are two concepts, two notions of market efficiency that are, conf that are regularly confused. One is the notion that efficient markets are markets where price equals value. Mm -hmm. And the other is the notion that markets are hard to beat. Now, Price equal value markets, for example, do not allow for bubbles because bubbles imply divergence of price from value. Mm -hmm. But knowing that you will have bubbles does not mean that you know when they occur, when it is time to actually take advantage of them. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Professor Meyer Statman discussing finance for normal people. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Meyer Statman. He teaches at Santa Clara University, focusing on finance and behavioral economics. Um, so let's talk about your most recent book, Finance for Normal People. I, I have to ask you about the title. How did that come about? Well, I've been speaking for a long time about people as normal, people like me, people like you, people like your listeners. The, the history of the field is that we start with the standard rational people, mm -hmm. people who are immune to cognitive errors, people who look only for risk and return when they choose products, financial products, financial services. Then we move to the first generation of behavioral finance where we declared people irrational, uh, subject to all kinds of cognitive errors. They are overconfident. They are suffering from hindsight bias and so on. Almost people are stupid. Uh, what I say is that I'm not stupid. You're not stupid. You're Listeners are not stupid. We are normal. Sometimes we behave in foolish ways, but normal people have normal wants. And you can see that in ads of financial services companies. Mm -hmm. You see a grandfather and a, and, and a grandchild, uh, they are fishing together. Uh, this tells you what is the money for? You know, we, we, we talk about how you make the most money, but what is the money for? It is for the financial security of the grandfather. It is for the ability of that grandfather to help his grandchild and so on. So one of the things that people care about is financial security. Another thing they care about is family and once you begin with what people want, then you can ask yourself, what kind of mistakes do people make on the way to what they want? 
And this is really where cognitive and emotional errors come in. So, so what I'm hearing from you is that investors should be goal-oriented, not merely money-oriented, and the money itself should serve a certain purpose, and that's what you're working towards, not just how could I maximize what my stock participation or my Precisely. Precisely. The, the, the question is, what is the money for? Mm-hmm. Uh, and people don't stop and ask this question. You know, I, I kind of joke about, about an investor who comes to his advisor uh, in early 2009, and the advisor, all shaking, of course, and the advisor says, what are you complaining about? I put you on the efficient frontier. <laughs> well, of course, we know exactly what he is complaining about. He is complaining because he is no longer sure that he will be able to retire. He is not sure that he'll be able to help his grandkids as he promised himself to do. Uh, so we have to be begin with what it is that people want, what it is that normal people want. And this is why I call the book Finance for Normal People. So in the book, you have a box and you have a list of common wants and desires, but that raises a question, can investors really get everything that they want? No, uh, investors, we cannot get everything we want. We have, of course, trade-offs. Uh, we can... We can uh, give money to charity, uh, and that is going to feel good, and that is going to be consistent with our values. But it might, if we give too much, imperil our financial security. And that is one thing that we want as well. And so you can see that there are many competing wants. And one of the things that we do in life, of course, is balance them and ask ourselves what is most important. And that really matters also to people who are older, people who ask themselves now, what am I going to do with that money? Uh, We have used, become used to saving. We are good at saving if we already Mm -hmm. have saved a good amount. But now we find it difficult to spend. So what are you going to spend the money on? And, and some people live as if they are poor when they have a ton of money because they've learned to save, but they've never learned to spend. That, that raises an interesting question. We, we see this all the time in that people who, who start out very risk-embracing, very aggressive, they start businesses, they're entrepreneurs, they start companies, and they're used to taking a lot of risk. And suddenly they're 60 years old, they've sold their business, they're thinking about philanthropy, retirement, wealth, generational transfers, and you it's very challenging to get them to recognize they shouldn't be taking as much risk, they should become a little more conservative, because they've already, they've already hit the jackpot, they don't need to, to embrace more risk, and that's a really challenging transition. How do you get people to recognize that their needs and wants change over time? Well, I think that people need to be reflective and people need to be helped in becoming reflective as an advisor can uh, help them do that. I mean, I, here, here's a personal story. Uh, my wife and I flew to Israel a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bought coach tickets and we were on the wait list for upgrade. It would have cost us $600 a piece 
each way okay, to, to get California this upgrade. To... From California to Yeah, that's to worth it. You should have spent the money. So, <laughs> so we were not upgraded. Uh, so we decided that we are old enough and well-off enough to buy regular business class tickets, even though... You know, I, I feel a bit like like a fool because it costs four or four five it's times. It's a fourteen hour flight. Who it, needs to sit in those terrible exactly? Seats for that if you long? can afford it, and right. and your kids are taken care of, and so on, what will you do with that money? So you have to figure out what matters to you. This is one example. In another example, we decided to buy a regular car and donate the savings relative to a prestige car to charity mm-hmm. because it gives us more pleasure and we are going to feel awkward in one of those luxury cars. Huh, that's interesting. So really, you're raising the point, how should investors and indeed families who are putting together a household budget, how should they prioritize their wants and needs? Exactly. And that is true for the saving stage, the working life, as well as the retired stage. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Professor Meyer Statman of Santa Clara University, discussing what investors really want. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Meyer Statman. He is the Glenn Klimek Professor of Finance at Santa Clara University. He is also the author of Finance for Normal People. His previous book, What Investors Really Want, Know What Drives Investor Behavior and Make Smarter Financial Decisions is highly regarded and available uh, on Amazon or your favorite book bookseller. Let's talk about what investors really want. You know, we briefly touched upon economic rationality um, before, but that kind of demands that investors seek utilitarian benefits from investing. That doesn't really seem to be how people operate. We're not just measuring risk and, and putting it up against potential reward, are we? That is right. We we do look for utilitarian benefits. We do look to increase our wealth at the level of risk that is right for us. But we also look for expressive and emotional benefits. You know, I like to tell the story of a man who is considering whether to give his beloved a Red rose or $10, which is the price of that rose? Well, a rational man would say, why not give her $10? This way she can choose what she wants. A, a rational single man. A rational single a married man. married man knows better. Those who are still married, yeah. <laughs> so, so the idea is, and let's bring this back to, to investing, there are expressive and emotional benefits to what we do with our money that go over and above the mere utilitarian function of it. Is that a fair way to Absolutely. And so and so th- think think about about a donations to charity. Mm-hmm. When you donate to a charity, you give up utilitarian benefits of money that you just donated, but hopefully you get a sense that you are true to your value, that you have done good for people who don't have as much as you do. And that is sufficient compensation in expressive and emotional benefits for the utilitarian benefits that you lose. So let, let's, again, let's talk about some things, um, uh, the sort of emotional benefits investors get. 
A positive one you mentioned previously was security and the ability to uh, help the next generation in their family as well as, as well as philanthropy. But, but I want to talk a little bit about what I like to call the cocktail party factor. And, and we see less of this today than perhaps we used to. If you remember in the 1990s, you couldn't go to a cocktail party or a barbecue or a dinner party where all the people outside of the industry, the finance industry, all they could talk about was their favorite stock, what they were buying, how much money they were going to make. We saw something similar in the 2000s with at least the first half with houses and this and that. So what is the emotional benefit of being able to chat about your stock picking prowess, how great your hedge fund manager is, et cetera? What, what is the value of that, irrational or not, to investors? Well, what is the value of solving puzzles? Uh, you know, if, if you fun, see Fun, entertainment. Exactly. And, and so for, for lots of people, it is fun, entertainment, and also demonstration mm-hmm. of their ability, of their smarts. And so I can pick stocks that are going to beat the market. Prestige, is that a uh, factor? It is, it is a self-satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It is an image of myself as a competent person. Mm-hmm. and a demonstration to other people that I'm a competent person. And so I invest sometimes in individual stocks, which I don't, but 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 if, if that typical person you're talking about uh, most likely tells others only of those stocks that went up, mm-hmm. uh, not those that went down, because he's trying to demonstrate competence to himself, but also to other people. That selection, selective retention... Uh... People only remember their winners. They don't remember their losers, do they? Yeah, well, they have not really lost anything because they have not realized that loss yet. <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about um, some other ways this manifests itself. We see index funds gaining in popularity. Uh, that doesn't really give people much to talk about at, at dinner parties. How does the rise of indexing change investor behavior? Well, I think I think that finally people are getting the point that if you are a typical individual investor, markets are difficult to beat. They are hard to beat. Yes, hedge fund managers do beat them, but you do not. And so people are moving towards index funds. And, and in an odd way, uh, they're getting the same kind of satisfaction of feeling clever, feeling smart. Uh, by buying index funds. That is what I do. That is, I look at people who try to play the market and I think about them as idiots. (laughs) And I take pleasure in being smart enough not to waste my money on attempts to beat the market. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Professor Meyer Statman of Santa Clara University discussing the details of behavioral finance. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Professor Meyer Statman of Santa Clara University, who is an expert in both finance and behavioral economics. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about something you alluded to earlier. First generation behavioral economics, second generation, third generation. So you started out saying first generation was the recognition that people aren't rational. And the second generation was... Well, people make bad decisions, they make mistakes, but that doesn't mean they're stupid. That's just 
humans being humans. What is third generational? Where well, does this I'm, go? I'm, I'm still I'm still in the second generation. Okay. Uh, in in the first generation, yeah, people are are irrational. Pe- people are idiots. Uh, <laughs> but of course, we are not idiots. There are things we want. So so consider, for example, trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trading has been attributed to a cognitive error. Why is it that people trade so much? Because they're overconfident in their abilities. Yes, that is true. But as we mentioned, it is also a matter of entertainment. Why is it that people play video games? Oh, uh, so for good. some people, trading is the equivalent of video games, but with money. It, there's, there's, I used to call it Atari for money. You basically would sit at a screen it, lights would flash, things would move, and you were trying to shoot the bad guys in order to make money. And it was absolutely an addictive adrenaline rush, as intense as any video game. Yeah, and and if you do it, uh, you know, with with a measure, just a little, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about buying a lottery ticket. Yeah, people who buy lottery tickets are derided as people who don't know math, mm-hmm. but. But, you know, a lottery ticket costs a dollar or five, and it right. gives us hope for the entire week before we find out that we lost again. And hope, you know, think about movies. You know, right. movies are fiction, right. and yet we pay real money for them. You're entertained for two hours. You I'm buy a lottery ticket. You get to talk about, here's what I would do with the $100 million. Exactly. And 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 so, and so the question really is not uh, but. Mistakes. You have to begin with what it is that people want and then ask yourself, how should you go towards what you want without making mistakes? And so buying one lottery ticket a week, that's fine. Spending half your pay on lottery ticket, that's an error. That's a problem. That's a real problem. So you're drawing an interesting dividing line between the both emotional and utilitarian uses of either investing or money or what have you. And it sounds like you believe we run into trouble when we don't acknowledge or recognize the legitimate expressive and emotional side of investing and not contain it. Don't try and completely shut it out, but you have to contain it and a dollar a week for a lottery ticket isn't the end of the world. Precisely. And so... Uh, think about socially responsible investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you uh, invest in a way that's socially responsible, you may say lose one percentage point of your return. It will give you expressive and emotional benefits. You have to ask yourself whether that one percent loss in utilitarian benefit uh, is not too large relative to the benefits that you derive from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of those things have to be done in proportion, in in a, in a good sense. Uh, the same applies to things like hedge funds. You know, hedge funds are prestigious because not everyone is allowed mm-hmm. to buy a hedge fund. So, so you can signal your wealth by doing so. But buying hedge funds for prestige and ending up losing money, that is not really a very good way of achieving prestige. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a, a personal anecdote. There was a friend of the family who asked my opinion of a specific hedge fund manager who I personally um, suggested he stay away from. Famous guy, 
regard, well-regarded early in his career, not so much lately. And this person ignored the advice and spent the next five years gleefully, I can't describe it in any way, other way than bragging about how much money this fund manager was losing for him. And it took me a while to realize, oh, he's not complaining, he's bragging. He has so much money, this guy could lose him millions and it doesn't affect him. And exactly what you're saying, it's not the dollar side of it, it's the prestige and emotional side yeah. of it. Yeah, well, one, one of the things that I discovered very soon after I came to the United States is that people in the United States, like in Israel, are very interested in money and very interested in, in their own income, but incomes of other people. Sure. But Americans are very secretive about that. The last question you would ask somebody here is, how much money do you make? But people signal how much money they have in all kinds of ways, you know, dropping hints about their extra house in upstate New York or 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 whatever, or, or through the cars they drive or the vacations they take or the stories they tell. Uh, and again, you know, if you do it in a way that is within reason and you don't waste too much money doing so, fine. But be reasonable. Some people get into trouble putting up a good front, spending more than they can afford for show, and that's a problem. That is exactly another facet of it. So let, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the things you've learned, having studied behavioral finance for so long. First, once we become aware of our own uh, behavioral foibles and cognitive errors, what can we do to overcome them, or can we? We can. Uh, we can. The first thing is to stop and think. Now, you don't have to do it with each and every in every decision. Uh, you're at a restaurant and, and there is fish and there is beef and there is chicken. What will you choose? Well, I don't know. I feel like fish today. That That is fine. But if you're going to buy a house or if you're going to invest, uh, you better pause and ask yourself whether you should not engage what we call system two, the thinking system, uh -huh. uh, to consider your choices. Uh, so, for example, for me, uh, whenever somebody tells me about something that was absolutely clear in the past, you know, 9-11 or, or, or the results of the recent election, mm -hmm. uh, I say, you know, my mind kind of rings and says hindsight. Right. Uh, check to see what people actually said before 9-11 or before the election, and you see that it's different. And so the first thing is to recognize the kinds of mistakes people make, whether it is hindsight or framing, and try to hold yourself to ways that will correct them. This, the same thing applies to emotions. Uh, we can step bay, back from our fears, from our anger, count to 10 before you speak when you're angry, they say, uh, and so we can help ourselves do better in life. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm, I've noticed following this election in the United States, a lot of, uh, I guess I would call it the narrative fallacy, people are creating these stories that pretty much describe the outcome as inevitable, when in reality, this was in a very co close election, and it could have just as easily gone one way or the other, and yet we've convinced ourselves this was the inevitable outcome, and we knew it all along. That exactly is what hindsight is, and you have to be careful. So let's talk a little bit 
let's talk a little bit about um, something you you had referenced in one of the book that the numbers are just astonishing. If we go back to the beginning of the Dow, if we look at 1896 on the Dow Jones Industrials, the year 1896, the average was at 41. Fast forward a century, and that had grown fairly robustly to over 9,000. But that doesn't include reinvested dividends. Tell us what happens over that same period if you reinvest dividends. Well, I'll tell you better. I'll, I'll update it to about today. So right now, the Dow is at the, around 20,000. Right, from, from 41 in 1896. Exactly, to 20,000. If you were counting dividends and their reinvestment, it would amount to 2.3 million. Wow, that, that's a lot of money. It, why, why do we not, why can't we conceptualize exponential growth like that? Because we are really anchored to the level today. We've been speaking with Professor Meyer Statman of Santa Clara University. If people want to find your work, the, the books are obviously available at um, fine bookstores everywhere. Where else can they find your writings? Oh, they can find uh, both books uh, on Amazon. The second book, uh, Finance for Normal People, will appear on May 1st, but you can pre-order it. Uh, they can also look up my name and get to my website and see uh, papers that I have written. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things behavioral finance. We love your comment, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Technology shifts, policy changes, new regulations. When it comes to investing, things move quickly. So you need a partner you can trust. At Merrill Lynch, that's been our goal since day one. It's why we explain our services and fees, measure progress around your life and goals, and offer access to resources whenever and however you want. At Merrill Lynch, we are bullish on the future. Yours. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Professor Statman, thank you so much for doing this and being so generous with your time. I find this endlessly fascinating, and there's so many questions I haven't got to. I, I, have, to, uh, I have to follow up with you on, starting with, we really didn't talk about this. You're on the Wealthfront Investment Advisory Board. How, how did that come about, and and what influence are you having over? I don't I, I don't know if the term robo advisor is all that accurate, but software driven um, asset allocation models. Well, I was asked to join as an advisor to Wealthfront because of my work in behavioral finance, and mm -hmm. of course, if you're going to do a platform, whether it is with a flesh and blood advisors or, or it is with an automated system, uh, you need to understand people. You need to understand what it is that they want, the kind of mistakes they make, and help them uh, identify their wants, balance them, and avoid mistakes. So speaking of mistakes, let's talk a little bit about Social Security and 401k, 401k and 403b and other 
tax-deferred SARSEP, uh, other tax-deferred retirement accounts have been pretty strongly criticized. If you look at the returns since the early 70s, they haven't been great, despite having one of the greatest bull markets of all time right in the middle. What's wrong with 401ks and, and their ilk? What did we do wrong setting that up? Or is it just 401ks are fine and it's the behavioral side that's the problem? It is not the behavioral side. Uh, it is how programs are structured. Mm -hmm. I, for example, like fellow academics, have been on a defined contribution plan, a 403B plan, right. since I first uh, was teaching at the City University of New York in 1975. The now, how thing, does that differ from a traditional 401k? It's, it's, it's exactly Same like thing. 401k. Exactly mm -hmm. like 401k. Not a defined benefit. It's a defined it's contribution. It's a defined contribution. So I've never had defined benefit. I've mm -hmm. never had a pension plan. And I can tell you without bragging that I have a lot of money now. Okay. Uh, the, now, let me guess. You were, you started early. Every time you got a raise, you raised your... No. Okay. So, no. So, so, okay. So here's the story. The story is that the City University of New York contributed, I think, either 12 or 15% to my measly salary at the time. Uh -huh. uh, I added to it. Uh, same at Rutgers College and at Santa Clara University today, and that is common, the university contributes 10% on top of my salary, mm -hmm. no matching, no anything. I can add to that, and I do. And I do. Now, the 10% so, so the real... they, they contribute, does that top out at, I want to say, either 18 or 24? No. Oh, really? That is without limit. So this is like a Roth 403B? Is it pre-tax or post-tax? It is, it is pre-tax. Mm -hmm. The thing, the thing, here's the thing. There are two aspects to the move from, from pension plans to defined contribution. Uh -huh. One has to do with who bears the risk. Right. Uh, and so now it is the individual employee. Not the company. The yep. other has to do with how much the employer contributes. Mm -hmm. Employers used to contribute to pension plans the equivalent of about 8% or perhaps even 10%. Of the salary. Now, yeah, now, uh, if you're lucky, they contribute 3%. Yeah, my, so my office is a 4% match. That yeah. is, and, and ask for a match, mm -hmm. and it tops out. That is the problem. The problem is not with the 401k. The problem is with the miserly corporations that contribute so little to it. Because mm -hmm. employees in the early stages need the money you know sure. for, for 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 diapers and and for for rent and so on it's very hard to save when you are young so santa clara could do a 10% it's not even a match it's a straight up 10% it is not just santa clara it is harvard it uh -huh. is all private institutions do that that's a nice uh, that's a nice uh, number well that that is the way it should be and that is a point that is not made mm -hmm. uh, instead we are pushing it to the employees and call them irresponsible and right. talk about how to nudge them i say i say enough of that first of all you don't need to nudge people. You need to shove them into... Okay. So you and Dick Thaler disagree about this. I uh, Well, I, I think that we differ in, in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the issue really is the politics of it. It is, it is very hard to have mandatory uh, contributions given, right. given the, the political uh, situation. But, but I think that, that there's a need to have 
a system that is structured kind of like social security, not extending social security, mm-hmm. but mandatory like social security. And there's really a need for employers to step up and contribute a whole lot more to employees' retirement accounts. Hmm. That, that's quite interesting. Um, wow. All right. I think that's quite fascinating. You know, the Thaler nudge thesis is simply uh, get people to pre First of all, make the 401k enrollment automatic, make the rise in contribution, have people agree to do that or opt out. So how you set the defaults make a big difference. But you're taking it a step further and saying employers need to really be part of this. That How do you persuade companies to well, do that? I mean, th- think, about, think about pensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, people did not have a choice. It was mandatory, in fact. People did not have a choice. Do you want a pension or do you want to get the money right now up front? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was done in a paternalistic way without nudging people and so on. How is it that we got ourselves into the nudging thing? We just moved really by accident almost from pensions to defined contributions and nobody asked, should it be voluntary or should it be mandatory? Oh, I don't think uh, it was an accident. I think it was a big money saver and oh, that yeah. much less headache for the companies. And yes. hence, that's why they, but, they went that But the that nature way. of it as being voluntary, that mm-hmm. was something that could have been made one way or the other. It so, could have been made mandatory. So once we started giving up pensions, 401, every company with more than X employees should offer a 401k and... You know, whether you match or not, you should at least set it up and, and run it. And you should and you should not even have it as a matching thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should just have it as a straight contribution. That is, matching helps people like me and like you. That is, people who have enough money to actually save, and then they get the bonus. Right. But the people who really need to save are the people who find it hardest. And many times, they just forego the match because they don't have the money to make their own contribution. See, we see it all the time. Let's um, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the hard-to-beat market hypothesis, not necessarily the efficient market hypothesis. What is the hard-to-beat market hypothesis, and what does that mean um, for investors? Well, the hard-to-beat market hypothesis says that gaining consistent advantage in the market, gaining consistent above average return is very hard to do. Very hard does not mean impossible. Hedge fund managers do that. Many active mutual fund managers do that Mm -hmm. and so on. Insiders definitely do that. The question really is who can do that? We talked about them. Who cannot do that? The typical amateur individual investors cannot do that. In fact, the reason those professionals are able to beat the market is because they take money out of the pockets of the idiot individual investors who try to to compete against them. And so and so it's not a question of whether the market is is efficient. And if it's not efficient, then anything goes and it's very easy to beat the market. Mm -hmm. You have to ask yourself, what edge do you have? If you have an edge, by all means, trade on it and beat the market. But if not, just buy an index fund and forget it. And be better off. So there's something in, and I don't recall which of the books um, 
you reference it, it might be the more recent one, about investors who have weak self-control and how they can manage their own um, behavior. And one of the things you suggested is, hey, you could spend your dividends, but never dip into capital. So, so describe the sort of rules that make sense for people who, under normal circumstances, are perfectly rational, but hey, let the market drop 20% and people start to freak out. Well, the, the distinction people make between income and capital mm-hmm. is a very basic one. And, and it is usually very helpful. When you're saving, it is very helpful because it means this portion of the cake you can eat, but this portion you cannot touch. You cannot dip into capital. Uh, the problem with it is that people are trying to get yield. People are trying to get income Mm-hmm. because interest rates are low and dividend rates are low, and they get themselves into dividend capture funds, for example, that waste their money. They create something they can call income mm-hmm. by getting more dividends, right. or they get into junk bonds because they have more higher interest rate, but, but they are oblivious to the kind of risk they're taking when they do that, and they are oblivious that those high rates that are promised are not realistic because, of course, this assumes that none of those companies will go bankrupt. So I recall something else you wrote, and I I hope I'm not mangling this too badly. Uh, Someone is presented with a choice of owning uh, either a stock or an index that pays a lot of dividends and taking the dividends or or just uh, recognizing the difference in tax rates on dividends and long-term capital gains, and instead just shaving off the equivalent amount of stock selling it instead of of the dividend, why do people have such a hard time doing the math on that and understanding, hey, it's better under these circumstances and this tax differential to sell a little bit than hold on to it, take the dividend, and pay a higher tax? Well, that's the difference between rational people and normal ones. Rational people say money is money. Mm-hmm. Uh, call it capital, call it dividends. If I don't get dividends, I can simply sell a few shares and get the equivalent of that. Uh, that is what Miller Modigliani showed us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but again, for normal people, this problem of self-control creates a need to have rules that will prevent you from spending too much. And one of those rules is spend dividends, but don't dip into capital. And that is very helpful during your working years. But then when you retire and you need to actually dip into capital, people find it really, really difficult. And, and they go in foolish ways to generate income uh, where in fact they should find a way themselves or with an advisor to dip into capital, because after all, uh, people don't live forever. Sorry right. to break the news. So there was something um, interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that again, edit that out. <laughs> um, your own behavior. You mentioned you um, tend to index, but as an investor, what else has changed in the way you interact uh, with investing in markets based on studying uh, investor behavior? 
Well, of course, I've, I've learned about markets and I've learned about myself. And, mm-hmm. and I find that even today, when I begin an investments class and I ask people what it is that they expect to know by the time this course is done, uh, somebody is going to say, I want to know how to pick the best stocks. And so I have to go and explain why that is not likely to be a good idea to try to do that unless they're going to be investment professionals. Uh, and so it is still hard for people to get. But by the time they're done with the course and by the time they, they read not just my writings, but of course this is now widespread, the uh, Jack Bogle and, and mm-hmm. Warren Buffett and so on uh, have said it, uh, people are getting the point. Mm-hmm. And people, in fact, invest in index fund. And sometimes I hear from students who took my class many years ago and write to say thank you. That's that's wonderful. What what are the most challenging biases to overcome? What cognitive errors present the biggest problem? Oh, I think that framing uh, is a problem. Th- mm-hmm. That is, when we are faced with a problem. We simplify it by framing, and so the the G- give an example if you well, want. again dividends and and capital. You know, mm-hmm. we, we frame it as being two separate monies, as if they have different colors. But that, but money is fungible. A dollar money, is a dollar, no matter what it comes exactly. from. Exactly, and and so and so there's really a need to recognize that framing, and frame it correctly as one pot of money and you have to find ways to dip into it in a responsible fashion. Mm-hmm. But but don't get confused as no, I cannot really dip into capital because it's a different color money. Hmm. That that's quite quite interesting. So we we've talked in general about um, various cognitive errors. We've talked about behavioral issues. How can people self-identify their own blind spots. The the classic Dunning-Kruger, um, uh, people who aren't especially talented have a blind spot for their own lack of talent in that given space. What can people do to not be as susceptible to their own uh, cognitive deficits, to their own emotions, and to their own second-generation behavioral problems? Well, we need we needed to know ourselves. And sometimes the way you see yourself when you shave uh, mm-hmm. is to use a mirror. And the way you see yourself in terms of investment is sometimes to read, uh, to speak with people who are knowledgeable in the field. Knowledgeable, I mean, knowledgeable in, say, those cognitive errors, mm-hmm. uh, identifying ones and... and uh, this way you kind of change your way of thinking. Uh, and so you learn you learn rules that are in fact useful. Uh, again, you learn to step away from your emotions, for example, whether fear, uh, you're, you're afraid, but then you say, well, what can possibly happen? Uh, and, and you can uh, put it in perspective, anger, uh, hope. Uh, you know, it is again, uh, something where where you cannot just just go by hope and buy lottery ticket with with abandon. So there was um I'm paraphrasing this and again I don't remember which of the two books this was from. There's the discussion on how much money we need to be happy. And 
what having more than enough money does to our psychology. Am I am I capturing that right? Well, one aspect of it of of more than enough. Uh, for some people, of course, there's never enough. And and if you ask yourself, really. Why is it that somebody who has $2 billion strives so much to get $3 billion? Uh, well, are, three is more than two. Exactly. So. Well, but, but, but you know, the, the But that standard, doesn't sound healthy. The stand, the, well, the standard finance or the standard economics says, uh, why do you save? So that you can spend. So you can, uh, well, have, a retire- comfortable so you can have a comfortable retirement. So you have security. So you don't have to worry about healthcare costs. Exactly. But but then you see many people, and not just the very wealthy, mm-hmm. who have way way more than they need, say for retirement or even for their family and and the next generation, uh, who still strive for more. And the answer is status, mm-hmm. because because a uh, two billion dollars is a lot of money. But $3 billion is more. <laughs> and if you are in this company of people for whom money is in billions, uh, it matters whether you have two or three. It matters whether the fellow who was below you with one and a half now exceeds you with three because now your relative status goes down. And so one of the things that we want and we have to recognize it, is social status. And social status is relative, which makes it really, really hard. It means that, that, that we are competitive to the end. And so if you can just step back and say, hey, you know, you don't have as much as Warren Buffett, uh, but you have more than you need. The uh, Leon Cooperman is a hedge fund manager, and he's one of the people who signed the pledge to give away half his money in his lifetime, and he's worth several billion dollars. And he tells the story at when he signed the pledge, he's at a dinner with about eight people, and there's Bill Gates at the table and Warren Buffett at the table and a handful of other people. And um, the check comes, and they give it to him. And the reason why Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and the rest of the table gave the check to Cooperman is... He was worth $3 billion. He was the poorest man at the table. <laughs> so the rule is the poorest guy has to pick up the check. And that's pretty, you think about that, that's pretty hilarious. But even at that level of wealth, people are still measuring and comparing and, and are aware. He, he actually describes it as, I was the piker at the table. Well, and you can see how people treat their wealth. You can see what Bill Gates is doing with his wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Buffett as well. And Buffett as well. And then you can see people who, who create those uh, generation-skipping trusts and mm-hmm. so on and, and, and keep the money as if they can take it with them right. to the next world. Cooperman actually is driving an old car. and I yelled Good for at, him. I yelled at him and I said, listen... Uh, you, you don't have to go out and spend $200,000 on some insane thing, but the new cars have Bluetooth and safety things and better airbags. You don't need to be driving a 15-year-old Lexus. Uh, you could, you could, he goes, I feel like it's not my money. I'm spending money that will be better used for charitable purposes. Well, that is really a kind of... A, a, you said the same yeah, thing. That is right. You, you, we, we develop habits mm-hmm. and we develop an image of ourselves. I mean, you know, seeing myself in a Lamborghini 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I can buy a Lamborghini, but I'm going to feel ridiculous. You can't in a get in low enough to get in the it's, car. It's is not the just problem. that, you know. <laughs> that, that, that is it. Just I, I just don't have enough hair for a Lamborghini. <laughs> I, I've seen plenty of people without a lot of hair in Lamborghinis. I just don't see that being in the Santa Clara University faculty parking lot. It would stand out a little bit. That that is also true, and and you really it is an image that you have in your own eyes and in the eyes of others. And so, yeah, I, I would be perceived as a braggart if, if, I, if I drove one now, of these. Now, if you were a hedge fund manager, you, the, the perception would be different. Your peer group might perceive it differently. It, it is true, and, and I'm happy I'm not in that company. <laughs> so before we get to some of our favorite questions, I have a handful uh, of things that, that I want to go over that I think we skipped. Uh, there's a question I have on risk aversion that we didn't get to. And there was one other question. Um, well, we really talked about priorities. Uh, do you do you look at smart beta at all? Have you have you researched much of that? Cause, I, I did. Because we're now over half a billion. I'm sorry. We're now over half a trillion dollars in smart beta. How much of this is people just chasing the new thing? Or is is this chasing factors that have worked in the past, or or is this something that's just a fad and is going to fade one day? Well, here is an academic uh, answer. Unfortunately, the 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 uh, question really is: What does the extra return that you get with a smart beta represent? Is mm-hmm. it representing beating the market, or is it representing just a fair return on your money? Uh, Meaning the, you're assuming more risk, so therefore you're potentially generating either risk or or it is it is simply how returns are determined. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have, for example, that returns are higher for value stocks, or small cap stocks, it is not necessarily risk. It might be other preferences, right? Uh, but value. Small so, cap, so if momentum, you, so if quality. You tilt, if you tilt your portfolio towards value, towards small, perhaps a low, low beta, and so on, you get essentially your money's worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not beating the market, and and uh, does it really work? Does it really add as much? Is it really stable? I don't know. I mean, I tilt my portfolio towards value and small. So do we. But I don't really go much beyond that. We, we do something very similar. The The thing that I think a lot of people forget when they're looking at returns, they should really be looking at risk-adjusted returns. So if you're going to if you're gonna assume a little more risk and a little more volatility, let's say with smaller cap stocks, you should be compensated for that additional risk. Yes, but, but more than that, you have to be aware of the cost uh, that is, the people who promote those smart beta funds and so on, they mm-hmm. take big chunks for sure. themselves. Does it leave you anything? That, that's that's the general problem with the hard-to-beat uh, market. That is, it's not that money managers don't beat the market. It is that they don't share it with their investors. Well, someone's got to keep those Lamborghini dealers happy, right? <laughs> so, so my last question before I get to the favorites we briefly ta- touched on risk aversion and loss aversion. Is there really a big difference between the two? Well, not really. In in daily language, when we talk about risk, we really talk about loss. Mm-hmm. Th- that is, we are not really talking about uh, about gambles uh, where 
where it is if you if you lose you win just one hundred dollars and if you win you win a thousand right uh, it is always uh you possibly can lose you put in one hundred dollars uh you might end up with zero or you might end with two hundred dollars and so and so that is what loss aversion actually the 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 really interesting distinction in my mind is between loss aversion and shortfall aversion that is what's the difference between okay the two? so 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 think about think about uh, the case where you bought a stock for one hundred dollars uh-huh. and now it is trading at sixty well the forty dollars are lost right an economist will tell you the forty dollars are lost whether you realize the loss or absolutely. not absolutely but but your aspiration but your reference point is the hundred. Is the one hundred, right. and so you hate that shortfall, and so you are reluctant to realize the loss because you are still trying to get even. Uh, and, and we've so, heard that countless times from investors. Dear God, just let me get it back to break even, and I'll never buy another fill in the blank. Uh, exactly, that, that's a common and, refrain. And so, and so, when you think about ambition more generally, that is that is shortfall aversion. That, that is, I am now in a position where I make ten dollars an hour. My aspiration is to get a job that pays thirty dollars an hour. I am now in a shortfall position that gives me the ambition to go study. What, do whatever is necessary to upgrade my skills such that I can get more. Uh, and so that, that really is, so, so you can have $5 billion, but, but if your benchmark, if your aspiration is 10, mm-hmm. you feel as if you are still a loser and you are trying to reach that aspiration. Huh. That, that's amazing. So let me jump into my favorite questions in the last uh, 20 or so minutes we have, we have left. Um, so we described, discussed a little bit about, um, your time, um, at, uh, Hebrew university in, in, were you, it's Jerusalem, in Jerusalem university. No, it's Hebrew university in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, your undergraduate degree, you have an MBA in finance. Yeah. What, what did you study undergraduate? Well, Undergraduate studies in Israel are different from from the United States mm-hmm. uh, in that you begin with majors, and so my majors were economics and statistics. And, so and it was very much a finance oriented. Well, it it was it was an economics and statistics, and mm-hmm. then and then I continued on for an MBA immediately after I got my undergraduate degree, uh, and there my focus was on finance. And when you come to the United States, you go to Columbia, you get a PhD. Is that where psychology started to uh, come into this? Oh, I, I had, uh, like all PhD students, I had some smattering of psychology there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's not really where, where it came from. What, what uh, the experience in New York and the experience of living in the United States, sure. of course, stayed with me. One, one of the things that I uh, used later in my studies is is the time of the energy crisis, uh, 73-74, when Con Edison uh, eliminated its dividends. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the annual meeting was raucous, and mm-hmm. people wanted to hang the, the chairman. <laughs> so, Professor Statman, tell us, who were some of your early mentors? 
Well, I was fortunate to have very many, and, and I try to reciprocate now by mentoring my students and, and my younger colleagues. Uh, it goes back, I can think, of, of high school, mm-hmm. where my English teacher said, I can see you uh, doing a master's degree. Well, you know, when you are in, uh, in high school, just, just the sense that, that a grown-up uh, is, uh, is saying that you can set your sights high mm-hmm. uh, is really uh, Very quite inspiring. Incor- exactly. And, and uh, you know, I, th- I think of Peter Bernstein. Uh, Peter Bernstein, uh, I got to know because I sent him some, some papers. Really? And he... And he took to the ideas of behavioral finance right away. I mean, he, it was right in him. And, and his, he was just, his book on risk against the gods is just spectacular. It is spectacular. And I have, I have his book on gold literally on my desk. It's two or three back in the queue, but it's, it's on my list. So, uh, so, I, so you know how fortunate I am that, to, to that's have amazing. him as, as a mentor. And so he opened, he opened many doors for me and he encouraged me to do that work, uh, and and in between, so you met him just merely by sending him well, a paper. I sent him, yeah, I sent him a paper very very early, nineteen eighty probably, uh, a simple paper about betas and and so on, and mm-hmm. and and he accepted it for the journal portfolio management. Oh, uh, he was editing that at the time. He was editing that at the time, and uh, and then. I sent him ah. some more, and and we got into into a correspondence. And he's he was always interested in ideas. The the, the last thing that matters to him is status. You know, uh-huh. you're you're a full professor or, or or assistant. He just he just thrilled to new ideas, and mm-hmm. so and so and and he was always innovative. And so it was it was really quite a, quite a pleasure. Uh, and and very very beneficial. So so he recommended me for a particular award. He put me uh, on on some board of a money management company and and so on. Uh, and he was he was a very tough mentor. That, that is really he, he would uh, sometimes I would get I would get comments uh, on on papers <laughs> that really. Uh, didn't make me cry, <laughs> but but surely surely were, were were painful. But of course, these were comments that helped me do better. He he is a meticulous writer. Everything oh, yeah. I've ever read of his, every page is just filled with not only deep research, but you could see the structure of the structure of the book, the structure of the chapter, the way he puts paragraphs together. So much thought and consideration goes into it. He's just a, a wonderful writer. So if he likes your writing, that that says a lot. Well, uh, yeah, as I said, he was a tough mentor, but but a very a very good one and a very kind one overall. That that is even even when he was tough. Uh, and and I had I had many others who were kind to me at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 any standout? Who who do you want to mention at Columbia? Oh, at Columbia, you know, two professors who actually left not long after I came, but but helped me even after they left. Uh, Richard Rippey mm-hmm. uh, and Jerry Schnee mm-hmm. uh, have been exceedingly helpful to me uh, at a time when I really needed most, and and mm-hmm. it was quite a pleasure to send them. Um, 
my book uh, and and add an inscription that that really thanks them for for their help when I needed it most. So so let's talk about investors. Who influenced your approach to investing, and what other investors affected how you looked at the world of behavior? Well. You know, I mean, you can think of, of Peter Bernstein as an investor. Sure, you, you can, absolutely. Uh, but but I have not really uh, followed a particular investor. I, I like the insights of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, I think, mm-hmm. is is very good at recognizing precisely the difference between markets where price equals value uh-huh. and markets that are hard to beat. And and so and so he says, yes, markets are such that prices deviate from value, but when it comes to individual investors, he say invest in index funds because markets are hard to beat. And so that these kinds of insights really stayed with me. And now let's talk a little bit about, about books. I, I, I referenced uh, Peter Bernstein's Against the Gods, The Untold Story of Risk. Tell us about some books that have been either influential to you or that you've just enjoyed or, or what have you. Well, on the on the just enjoyed or touching a, a, a book a book in Hebrew that just was translated is called Judah, mm-hmm. and it's about the story of of Judah uh, Iscariot, uh, and it kind of uh, twists the story uh, whereby Judah becomes becomes the 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 hero of the story, other mm-hmm. than Jesus, of course, uh, and it is set in Jerusalem, Jerusalem that I know, and so it was very very touching uh, to me. On on the nonfiction, of course, I read uh, recently The Undoing Project oh, sure. by, by Michael Lewis that, that we just talked about. And, and one of the things that really struck me there was, one, how Kahneman and Tversky were laughing as they did Constantly. their work. And, and when I think of my work with Her Sheffrin, mm-hmm. my good friend and colleague, uh, we did the same thing. You know that that people really wondered why is it that we laugh so much? But but that is one. The other thing that struck me is the struggle for status. I mean, I mean between the, the two of them, between the two of them, it ultimately broke it them up. Ultimately broke them up. And so, it, if 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 you needed some piece of evidence of how important social status is to mm-hmm. us. Uh, you have that, and it's kind of a, this. This part of it, of course, is a sad story. I knew just a bit about it, but not, but not much, uh, and that exposed it. And and I look at them and I say, they are, they are people like me and you. They are normal mm-hmm. people, and and when one feels that he is treated unfairly, and 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 there are want of fairness is another thing we want. Uh, one responds in ways that that uh, really terminate a good friendship. Hmm. That, that that's fascinating. Any other books you want to reference? It doesn't even have to be finance related. Oh, I don't. I don't find myself reading too many books. What but, What are you reading right now? What's the most recent book you read, other than Undoing Project? Well, I'm I'm beginning uh, to read the book in in Hebrew again. Mm-hmm. Uh, about that, that relates to kind of the, the political situation, the, the sort of back and forth uh, between between Israelis and Palestinians that goes nowhere, and it kind of makes a story of that about how how uh, Palestinians arrange for a demonstration, uh, Israelis have a rule book as how to disperse a demonstration, mm. and so on, and so it kind of goes 
one step here and one step there, wasting time and energy and lives. No progress. Uh, and getting exactly well, What's getting the name nowhere. of the book? Um, or the author? I don't remember. Okay. Email it to me. I'll, uh, I'll add uh, it to the list. Um, let's keep going down our, our favorite questions. So since you've joined the world of academia and since you've started studying finance and behavior, what's the single most uh, significant change that you've, you've become aware of? Well, in in finance, I think I think that it's not just because I'm biased towards behavioral finance, but but one of the things that that has changed really is the reception of not just behavioral finance, but but generally looking at individuals, looking mm-hmm. at people, uh, and asking how is it that that they behave. Uh, when Hirsch, Shefflin, and I, in fact wrote the very first paper that was published in, in, a, in a top academic journal, Journal of Financial Economics, uh, and it was published in 1984, and it has to do with this issue of dividends. There was, there was almost a riot uh, there at Rochester, uh, really? and, and people, uh, and we heard later that, that, that people uh, uh, said that they will never, ever send another paper to this journal if they publish this one. Really? Uh, and, and Merton Miller, two years later, wrote a paper essentially attacking our paper. Well, that's uh, great, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Bring more when, attention when, to when it. Merton Miller does that. Uh, today, uh, you know, it's not that the work is ho-hum. Not at all. There's really new, exciting work, uh, informative work, but but you don't really have the kind of struggle that we had uh, at the time in the early 80s. So Merton Miller attacked your paper, made it more well-known by the attack. Have you ever heard the phrase, the Streisand effect? No. So this is an interesting little bit of internet lore. Barbara Streisand, the famous singer has this beautiful California oceanfront home on the top of a cliff. Some company does all these aerial footage and they sell the footage to things like Google Maps and to real estate companies because they want to, uh, you know, it's a it's a useful tool if you're, if, if you're doing construction, if you're looking at environmental impact, there's a ton of uses for it. So, but theoretically, these... 1,000-foot flyovers violate people's privacy. It turns out it doesn't, but Barbara Streisand sued the company because they violated her privacy. All the documents that no one ever, you know, it's one house of a million along the coast. No one would have known it's hers, but as part of the litigation, the specific house, the location, the address, all this stuff becomes public. And since then, um, people have taken the attempt to suppress something and accidentally making it more broadly distributed is the Streisand effect. Merton Miller did that for you. Uh, in part, yeah, he did that. Um, yeah, it is It is really nice to sort of struggle against something. Uh, if something is, is fully accepted, it is no longer Too easy. fun. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly right. What about, um, so you mentioned that that was one of the changes that took place, a little more acceptance of behavioral finance what do you see as the next shifts in the future well i think i think that that it is about creating a structure for behavioral finance uh, really uh, central to my second book uh, is 
to dispel the notion that behavioral finance is is kind of a set of interesting stories about people who behave in in, in ways that are not entirely rational and so on. Uh, But people say, where is your portfolio theory? Where is your asset pricing theory? Where is your market efficiency theory? And my answer is that is that we have all of that. And that is what I tried to show. That that is, you have rational people, we have normal people. You have a standard mean variance Mm -hmm. portfolio theory, we have a behavioral portfolio theory, and so on. And uh, just just to add, Harry Markowitz Mm -hmm. uh, is- Modern portfolio theory. Modern portfolio theory. He is also a great fan of behavioral portfolio theory. Uh, Harry Markowitz really knows investors and he knows behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he think of himself with a, a good amount of justification as being one of the fathers of behavioral uh, Sure, if you think theory. about modern portfolio theory, there, it's it, it certainly he is an intellectual father of, of the... Uh, of the study, right? It, it, well, but but more than that, you know, that is one one of the central things about mean variance portfolio theory mm-hmm. is that you have to look at your portfolio as a whole. Meaning the combination of stocks, bonds, and other non-correlated exactly. assets. I, I, I liken it to looking at, at food from the perspective of the stomach, where it's all right. mixed together. So it's not, it's not starch, protein, vegetable. Exactly. It's, oh, that's and, an interesting and, parallel. But... but uh, he understands that that you have to begin with people's goals. Uh, so you have this kind of goal-based planning. And so he and I and two of our colleagues wrote the paper together. Markowitz. That, Markowitz. What year was what? what uh, year that was, was published in 2010. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we developed a a uh, a mental accounting portfolio theory where where people keep their money in separate pockets, separate goals, uh, for example, retirement and college education and bequest, uh, and they optimize each of them by the rules of mean variance and then put it together. And so we show some some interesting uh, theoretical results, but the most interesting part really is to say, yeah, normal people think this way. They don't think about money as being kind of generic, they think about it, money that I need for this goal or that goal. Portfolio optimization with mental accounts. Exactly. Fun with Google. Uh, and, and um, oh, that's quite, that's quite fascinating. I'll have to take a look. I'll yeah, have there, to take there, a look at this. There is a non-technical version of that in the- I see JSTOR. It's uh, the Journal of uh, Financial and Quantitative- That one, but, but the other one is in, in the journal of wealth management. Okay, uh, I will, I will, I will make, I will add that link for when we. Uh, let's see, journal of wealth management, CFA I, Institute. I think we called it portfolios for people who want to reach their goals or something. When and, and, here, here's how someone else described it: when behavioral portfolio theory meets Markowitz. <laughs> that that's interesting. All right, so I will find all those links and make sure they're included. I'm down to my last three questions. So what do you do to relax or, or keep mentally fit outside of the office? Oh, you know, I, I exercise. Not, what do you do? Not, what do you do to exercise? Oh, you know, I, I have equipment, a treadmill mm-hmm. and, and a bike and one of those uh, whatever that, that, that helps um, kind of the equivalent of, of uh, lifting weights. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And what else do I do? Uh, you know, mentally, of course, my, my, my work and, and, and politics and, and the like, uh, of course, uh, keep, me, keep me alive. Uh, but, you know, around the house, it's, it is odd. Uh, I, I kind of take delight in doing projects uh, like, uh, like building uh, an enclosure for, for, mm-hmm. for storage and, 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 and so on. And so, and I, so I have to ask you a political question because uh, this has been a very political era. But I can't help but notice that the way Americans argue over politics is very different the way – Europeans or Israeli argue over, you know, Israelis can have a political argument, debate, discussion, and then say, let's go to lunch and it's forgotten. Americans, it goes into two camps and neither side hears what the other side says. What do you attribute those differences to? You've you've seen both countries long enough. Culture is very, is very different. That, That is one of the things that struck me, uh, when I came to the United States in, in Israel, uh, if people uh, agree with you, they're quiet. But if they disagree, you will hear them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, it's the opposite. Uh, you will know that they disagree with you if they are quiet, <laughs> rather than telling you that they agree. And, and so, and so they 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 are very Americans. We are very uh, debate argument averse. Uh, Land so, of confirmation bias? Well, is that a no, no, selective, no. I, th- uh, I think that it's actually good. It, it's kind of, it, it's a politeness. It is mm-hmm. a civility. Uh, and so uh, in, before, before I tell you my political take, I try to probe what yours is uh, to see. And if it is very different from mine, I just terminate the discussion and move on to talk about what, sports. What, what's the old expression? Never talk about politics, religion, or um, I don't remember what the third one is. Not but sex. You, is you it? It's politics, religion, sex. or sex. Don't talk about that. That That's the old How about day. money? Um, people here talk about money. I don't but think they're- But not, not about income. They talk about No, that's right. Yeah. And they talk about spending, and they talk about houses and cars, but it's never income. And our favorite two questions, if one of your students or another millennial were to come up to you and ask for your advice, telling you they were interested um, in going into the field of- either finance or behavioral economics, what sort of advice would well, you give Well, you know, them? I, I coordinate internships of finance majors, and, mm-hmm. and what I tell them, I use the word serendipity, that, that is fine by accident. Uh-huh. Uh, you have to figure out not just the world around you, you have to figure out yourself, what what works for you. Uh, and And you do that by kind of keeping your eyes open and keeping to this idea of serendipity. Figure out, you know, ask yourself, would you want a job along the lines of this internship or is that definitely one mm-hmm. that you would not want? Uh, and so and so, continue on in in that way. And, and so I tell them, you want to go into finance, into behavioral finance, if you want to go to the academic side, uh, ask yourself whether you delight in new ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't, and, and willing to work, of course, if, if you don't delight in new ideas, you know, you may as well go to engineering. <laughs> um, I think there might be some new ideas in engineering, but, but who knows? And our final question, what is it that you know about investing in human behavior today that you wish you knew 25, 30 years ago when you were first starting? Well, you know, 
my answer might, might surprise you, but but the answer is nothing. Th- mm-hmm. That is that is I really enjoyed the journey as much as I enjoy the destination. And I continue on that journey. And so all I need is kind of like like when you drive uh, a car and you don't really need the headlights to show you any more than, than a, a distance uh, that is out there. Uh, and as you move, you know, the lights move with you and you see the next part of, of the road. You don't need the navigation system. You just need well, to look out ahead a little. You might you might need the navigation. I certainly do, but <laughs> but but I think that not the, for the, the metaphor. Joy, the joy of discovery mm-hmm. is really uh, too much to give up. Uh, to know that that is I I don't know that I would have wanted twenty five years ago or thirty years ago to know exactly where my life is going to take me. I I think that it is a nice thing when you discover things along the way and you explore things and you enjoy them. We have been speaking with Professor Meyer Statman of Santa Clara University. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check Up an Inch or Down an Inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see the other 130 or so such conversations we've had previously. Thank you so much, Professor, for being so generous with your time. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my booker, Michael Batnick, our head of research, Medina Parwana, our recording engineer. We love your comment, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. A registered broker-dealer, member SIPC.